morning we turn to Psalm 38 for our reading of Scripture. This is a prayer of confession, one of a number that are found in the Psalms, and in it the psalmist David expresses our depravity, the subject of the Heidelberg Catechism that we consider this morning. Psalm 38, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure, for thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before Thee, and my groaning is not hid from Thee. My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eyes, it also is gone from me. My lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore, and my kinsmen stand afar off. They also that seek after my life lay snares for me, and they that seek my hurt speak mischievous things and imagine deceits all the day long. But I, as a deaf man, heard not, And I was as a dumb man that openeth not his mouth. Thus I was as a man that heareth not, and in whose mouth are no reproofs. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord my God, for I said, Hear me, lest otherwise they should rejoice over me when my foot slippeth. They magnify themselves against me, for I am ready to halt and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. But mine enemies are lively, and they are strong, and they that hate me wrongfully are multiplied. They also that render evil for good are mine adversaries, because I follow the thing that good is. Forsake me not, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. We consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 3.
Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. But God created man good, and after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God his Creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. Hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism, being faithful to the Holy Scripture, has just condemned you and condemned me and rendered a judgment, and that judgment sets forth our fundamental basic problem our fundamental basic misery, which is that we are prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. That that is who and what we are as human beings and in our human nature. And that, you understand, is not simply the judgment of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's not merely the judgment of certain radical or pessimistic Christians, but it is the judgment of God himself. It's God's own condemnation of me and judgment of you that comes from and is learned by the law of God. It is the law of God that exposes who and what we are, and its judgment is you and I are prone to hate God and our neighbor. Now, that's called depravity. Depravity. That word itself is not a biblical word, but it is a confessional word. It is the word that our confessions adopt for our condition and our situation. That word is used in the Belgic Confession, Article 12, to refer to the fallen condition of the devil's teaching that our fundamental misery and condition is the same as that of the devils themselves. In Article 36 of the Belgic Confession, establishing the authority 
and the right of the magistrate or the state to rule over us, it states that our gracious God appointed kings and rulers because of the depravity of mankind and to restrain that dissoluteness of men. The word is also used in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 51, where when praying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that prayer has an understanding that God forgive not simply our sins, but that depravity which always cleaves to us. And that word is used in the canons of Dort. In that confession, too, in Head 3-4, Article 3, we read that all men are conceived in sin and by nature are children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, in bondage thereto, and without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, are neither able nor willing to return to God. And then it adds, or to reform the depravity of their nature. When one looks at the confessional teaching of Scripture that is found in our confessions, then one will also see that that depravity is described as corruption. That is something that is evil, and part of the evil is that it corrupts that to which it adheres to or is inside of. And that corruption is that it renders something good to not be able to use as it ought to be used. It ruins it. It tarnishes it. It makes it unusable. It makes it undesirable. It takes that which was intended to be good or has a purpose to be good and makes that impossible. That's the idea of corruption, pictured in Scripture as rust or mold or moths. The most apt picture, perhaps even the most prominent picture in the scriptures and in our creeds of this corruption is the corruption of a disease. A disease that is found in the flesh, even a mortal disease which renders life useless because it brings down to death. And indeed, the language used with regard to pravity is even much stronger than the picture. So consider with me this morning our misery, which is the disease of depravity, the disease of depravity. And we notice three things about that, that it is first total, 
That is, it thoroughly corrupts the entire nature so that there is nothing good in my human nature. Secondly, that it is inherited. Speaking now about its source, where does it come from? And the answer is, it proceeds from Adam through our parents. It is inherited. And then finally, three, that it is a mortal disease. And mortal, not simply as we often think of it, that it eventually kills us, but it's mortal in that we have it and thus are already dead, though we appear to be living. So total inherited mortal. First, a total disease. Want to begin by reading a very apt and informative article in our confessions about depravity. And that's article 15 of the Belgic Confession. And we read that because in the first place, it teaches us that this depravity is related to original sin. In fact, it's called that original sin. One may substitute really the idea of depravity there. And original guilt. We read, we believe, we believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption. There's that word corrupt. It corrupts the whole nature and is an hereditary disease wherewith infants themselves are infected even in their mother's womb, and which produceth in man all sorts of sin. So it's the source of all sin, being in him as a root thereof and therefore is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. Many, many informative things there. Even with regard to the idea of totality, what do we mean by total? We'll return to that in just a bit, but take notice that depravity itself is sufficient to condemn you and to condemn me and to condemn every single human being, even if we could imagine that somehow, some way, we weren't also guilty of all kinds of sins. Let's imagine, if we could for a minute, that we could live perfectly and righteously before God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, our depravity itself is enough to condemn us. And it's, as we're going to see, the depravity itself, which explains why what I just proposed is absolutely impossible. This is the Bible's explanation of depravity. A disease, a total and thorough disease, the original disease, the disease of all diseases, 
the one disease of which all other diseases are merely but small, imperfect pictures. We should consider that when there is a virus that slowly infects all mankind so that there's quarantines and vaccines and a mad scramble to do something about it. It's but a small picture of depravity. When there is a cancer that starts out as a small lesion in some unknown part of the body and grows until it's finally detected, and then when it's detected, the doctors are unable to treat it because treating it will even kill you, and yet the disease itself will ravage the body until one is dead. It is but a picture of depravity. Leprosy. Mankind has eliminated practically leprosy so it hardly exists, or if it exists, only exists in third world countries or areas where there is little access to medicine, was one of the great, great pictures in Scripture of the character and nature of depravity as a disease. The explanation of the Heidelberg Catechism as to how this comes about is that it was not God's fault. That's the main point that's being made here that we cannot overlook even when explaining what depravity is. It's done in the context of asking this question. Did God make us that wicked and perverse? And the answer is, by no means. The purpose of the catechism here is twofold. First, it is to condemn us. It is to condemn us for what is our fault. You are at fault for the depravity that you received. And I am at fault for the original sin that was committed that led to this. Second place, it is not God's fault who made us. God did not create us with this condition. That is, this condition is not at all natural. It is not a natural part of the human race or of this creation. This is done in the interest especially of God. And this, you see, is one reason why we together reject the explanation of origins, even the origin of the human race, that is made by modern science in evolution and by evolutionary processes, and why we reject even a so-called theistic explanation of evolution. There are many reasons why we reject that, chief of which is that is not the explanation of Holy Scripture that one believes by faith. That is the explanation of unbelief. 
through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So that the things that are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, another reason is that if things came about, as is the explanation taught to the vast majority of the world, then God is to blame, at least if one is going to have a God and have a God who is Creator, have a God who is in some way theistically involved in the world, then God is to blame. God is to blame for the sin that is in the world. God is to blame for the wars, for the violence, for the bloodshed, for the iniquity and sin of man because He created it that way. There's no way to escape that conclusion. And God forbid, because God is good, God is righteous, God is holy. God, in fact, did not make the world this way. He did not create a world with death inherent in it, so that it takes millions of years of death and life for creatures to evolve from so-called lower life forms. In fact, a process that even requires death. Survival of the fittest, that is, survival from death by the fittest. We also reject those notions because if that is the case, not only is God impugned for man's sin and man excused, God blamed when man ought to be blamed, but then the solution is not God's either. Then the solution for this misery and this problem, the solution for war and bloodshed and violence, the solution for disease and death is to be found in man. It's to be found in evolution. It's to be found in the development of the human race particularly and in its laws, and its ideals, and its philosophy, and its science. When the fact of the matter is, there is no cure for this disease. Man may indeed posit, and may even indeed find a way to increase the life of a human being. May find a way to increase the quality of life for many, many more human beings than they currently enjoy, may succeed even in creating a certain peace so that nations are not killing nations for a while or curb diseases that formerly would kill us. But man cannot solve Depravity never will, because such is this corruption and disease that man cannot and will not even recognize it. And here it is worth reminding ourselves again that the knowledge of what we are being taught here and what we are learning is part of our comfort in life and death. That the very thing the very explanation 
given here. And our knowledge of it and our receiving of it is by faith. Receive what is found here in the Heidelberg Catechism because it is the Word of God. And receive it through faith. No, God, God created man good. And it is important that it is right here that we learn and are instructed in the image of God. Whenever the confessions or whenever Scripture teaches or instructs on the image of God, it is always in the first place related to our creation. One must go to how man was originally created, and you will notice that when it comes to the image of God, that is the earthly reflection of God's divinity, the earthly reflection of who and what God is, that it pertains to man's moral goodness. That it doesn't have so much to do with the form of man, has nothing really to do with his body or even his earthly faculties, has little to do with his brain and his heart, but it has everything to do with his relationship to God. And when it comes to the image of God, you will always learn, too, that when it comes to what the image of God is, Scripture and the confessions are united on this, and it's especially taught when we learn what's restored in Christ. The confession here says we are depraved. We are prone to hate God and our neighbor. We are wholly incapable of doing any good except we are regenerated. And if one would ask the question, what happens when we are regenerated? One thing that happens is the image of God is restored. That which man loses, he gains. And Scripture identifies that image man lost and that which he gains through Christ as righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. Now we could ask why those things and what are those things and what they pertain to. And one could and really should answer them that one must define them and understand them in relationship to God and do that because that's what the catechism does here, strikingly and very importantly. That God wasn't just giving to man something by which he resembles God for no end or purpose, but those things themselves placed man in a relationship to God and enabled that relationship Catechism does that when it says that He made Him in His own image in true righteousness and holiness. And now notice that He might rightly know God, His Creator, heartily love Him, and live with Him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise Him. That's worth a sermon right there. But let me unpack it. God made man with two moral qualities. Righteousness and holiness. 
Righteousness has to do with one's status before God. Does one measure up to the standard of God's righteousness? It has to do with what a man is morally before God. He's either right and righteous or wrong and wicked. One or the other. And holiness has to do with one's life. It means that one's entire living is consecrated to God. That's why the catechism adds and lives with Him. One is righteous and holy with regard to God. Or if one is not righteous and holy with regard to God, one is unholy and unrighteous and unrelated to God. But those now are related to the third, which is true knowledge. Now notice the catechism says that Adam was given true righteousness and holiness in order to, or to the end that, he might rightly know God. Now that's interesting because if you think about it, you could say that it's necessary to know God in order to know one's righteousness and holiness. How could you know whether you measure up to the standard? How could you know that you're consecrated to God unless you know God first? Which tells us something. It's looking at that word knowledge in a different way. Not merely intellectual knowledge, to know with the mind, but to love with the heart and the will. It's the knowledge of love. And that love is the relationship. It is the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. And that's why the Catechism says that. That he might rightly know God, his Creator, heartily love Him. Those aren't really two different things, but one and the same. That is, that he might rightly know God in love, love God, and therefore live with God. You all should recognize what I'm describing here, which is the covenant. We define the covenant as a relationship of love. A relationship of friendship and fellowship with God, wherein we are God's friends and God's servants. Adam was created in the image of God, and in that creation, created in a covenant relationship with God. Can you think of any better position? any better place, any better thing for a human being. That's the goodness with which God created man. Not simply a goodness of form or function, but the goodness of being the friend and the servant of God and morally right and consecrated entirely in all that he was and is to God in love. The depravity of man is he forsook that. The sin of man is that he forsook that. And the depravity is that he's unable to reestablish or want 
or desire that relationship back with God again. And I might add that the gospel here is that that relationship is restored. That's why when the catechism gets to question and answer 12, two Lord's Days from now, it's going to ask the question, is there a way by which we may again be received into God's favor? That is, again to enjoy that relationship of love and fellowship with God again. Only now it has to be of grace. Because man forsook it. Man left it. Man broke that covenant. That covenant of creation. That covenant by virtue of His creation in the image of God. And that can only be restored in Christ. But now the totality of that corruption. That too is taught in the Catechism, briefly, when it says that man is so wicked and perverse. Hence our nature has become so corrupt. It's teaching that totality. It's teaching that when it says we are holy, that is entirely, completely incapable of doing any good. And that you must understand is how we interpret the word prone. Are we prone to hate God and our neighbor? Or when it uses that word inclined, inclined. You must interpret those two words prone and inclined in the light of the totality, wholly incapable of doing any good. The totality of depravity is also taught when it contrasts that with our original good creation in God's image and in that wonderful relationship with God. It also teaches that totality of our depravity when it says that there is only one exception. That however this is explained, the only time the only occasion and circumstance where there is good done or not an inclination to hate God is except a person is regenerated by the Spirit of God. So what does that mean? And we have to be very clear here because even the pictures don't entirely paint the whole story. Total means, number one, that it is a corruption. It is a disease of the entire body and the entire soul. Every faculty of the soul, mind, will, heart, all of it is infected and diseased. Every faculty of the body, of the flesh, it affects not simply the soul, but all the actions of the body, whether they're committed by the mind or the mouth or the hands, is depraved. It includes every human being, total in the sense that every single human being, Christ accepted, is depraved. We are all conceived and born in sin, says the Catechism. And then finally, 
by total we mean that it corrupts. That is, it renders sinful, it renders subject to the condemnation of God, it makes everything that, every deed, every action, every thought, every discussion, every activity that we are engaged in. None accepted, not one, is corrupted and infected by this depravity. That's what we mean by total. Now we have to consider also where this comes from. And the confessions, again, are very clear. It's inherited. We may trace it all the way back to Adam. That's how far back we can go. And as recent as your own parents. Your parents gave you depravity. It infects every single child, even in their mother's womb. That is, this infection has nothing to do with your will. You're wanting it or not wanting it. It has nothing to do with your consciousness of it. Whether you're aware of it or not, you have depravity. You are literally born with it. And it has to do with our own natural procreation. If there's any doubt about the interconnectedness of body and soul, spiritual matters and physical matters, just considered depravity. It doesn't just affect the spirit, but the body. And it's even passed on by physical procreation. The very physical act of begetting begets not simply another human being and another person, which only God can do. But with that goes along depravity. Why do we bring that up? Because we must avoid two ditches here. The first is that I'm only guilty or liable or responsible for the actual sins I commit. That there's really nothing I'm guilty of prior to me actually doing anything. That's the notion of Pelagianism. That's the notion of much of our own modern world, which may even refer to evil and wickedness. But nothing's really evil or wicked that you're responsible for unless you're conscious of it, unless you actually do it. The notion that you are guilty for an infection that you receive from someone else is foreign. The world even uses that as an excuse. Why, he can't be blamed. He's born that way. In fact, the work of the church. The church has been infected with this thinking And so salvation today, love in the church today, is to accept someone as they are. That's true love. True love is to acknowledge that there's really nothing we can do about depravity except that which we can do by modern means and modern science and philosophy. And for the rest, we forgive, which means to forget, to not talk about it or deal with it. Certainly, one should not be disciplined for such sins because, after all, they are born with it. The other ditch, of course, is that we excuse our own sins for the same reasons. 
that we say to ourselves that, well, this can't be helped. This isn't my fault. This has nothing to do with me. And you understand that there's a theological danger here also, which is that then pretty soon one objects even to God's way in election and reprobation. One rejects God's way in its entirety with regard to these matters. And we can say the same thing. I'm only responsible for that which I actually consciously do. No. We, we have to be reminded, beloved people of God, of how pervasive this is. There's no escaping it. We need to be reminded that we are the way we are, not entirely because of the decisions and acts we make, but simply because we're human beings born of Adam and Eve. We need to understand and know that so that we are humble. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism even treats this under the request for forgiveness. How often when we ask God for the forgiveness of sins, do we remember that clause in the Heidelberg Catechism and forgive, Lord, even that depravity which is a part of me? You see, we are given a different level of responsibility here. The Catechism following Scripture wants to make sure that all human beings are condemned before God for something that human beings did as a race and as a people that we're liable for because Adam is not only our physical father but our legal father. And we have to admit that and understand that. You cannot escape that by simply saying there is no Adam. That's simply a feeble attempt by man to avoid the responsibility of his actions before God and God will have none of it. We have to understand why the Catechism is teaching this so that we understand that there's no help for us in us. There's no help from this fundamental misery and this fundamental condition in self-help classes and in books. Not really even in instruction or even in saying this is wrong or that's right. The fundamental problem needs to be dealt with. And we have to see the urgency of it. And that's what we get at when we see that it's mortal. And mortal in a way that we often also don't think about. And that even the devil used when he first was used to tempt. And when he tempted into this great, great misery. You remember what the lie was? The lie was, thou shalt not surely die. O Eve, go ahead and eat of the fruit that God said you couldn't. You're not going to keel over and die. You're going to continue to live. That fruit's not poisonous. There's nothing wrong with that fruit. He lied in the very day, as God said, she ate. She died. And she showed she died because she immediately went to her husband and tempted him like Satan tempted her. You see, we need to have a healthy respect for this depravity, that it's there when we're born, and therefore we are born dead. We're born without any ability 
We're born without any righteousness, without any holiness, without any love, without any true saving knowledge of God whatsoever. And if there would be any that we could see that is revealed, we would turn from it. We would reject it. We would despise it. And that is to be dead. To be dead is to be completely unaffected by that outside of you. Completely unable to do anything. And the Scriptures teach that this depravity is to be dead in sin. To be saved is to be dead to sin. But we're born dead in sin. No saving ability. No desire for God. No love for God. No devotion to God. We're born apart from God. Separated from God. And that is death. You see, the moment we enter into the grave is only another stage in death itself. That great process of corruption and destroying and rendering evil and wicked. We have to do justice to that with regard to depravity. Total, oh yes, but it develops. You see that even in the death of man. We must understand that this mortality is such that there is only one way to cure it. One way to eliminate it. One way to destroy it. And that is the flesh must be destroyed. Such is this disease. Such is its totality. Such is it a part of who we are, beloved, that even when we are regenerated, it's not improved. It does not get better. The being prone to hate God and our neighbor doesn't lessen. We have to understand that. Part of the reason that we sin so often and frequently is we think, well, somehow that's been mitigated. Somehow my depravity is lessened. Somehow it's not the part of me that it used to be. Oh, no. It's just as dead as it ever was. Sin's just as powerful as it ever was. That's not what regeneration does. Regeneration doesn't take that away. We just got done learning not so long ago that the flesh must be mortified. That is, put to death, killed, eliminated. It has to go into the grave. And why why all this totality? Why all this completeness? Why all this... And the answer is so that you and I find absolutely no way of salvation in us. There's no hope for man in the human race. There's no love for God in your nature. There's no good in you and in me and in our flesh. That's the point. The point is don't look to yourself in any way, form, or fashion. There's nothing in you that is in your flesh. If there is anything, it must come from above. It must come from somewhere else. If there is good that is done, it has to have its power, its source, delivered and given from outside of you. And that is so that we flee and go by faith to the only solution, the only cure, the only deliverance from our depravity, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. 
Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, deliver us from our sin and our misery, and thus our deeds that are sinful as well as our depraved and sinful nature. O Lord, deliver us even now in such a way that we know it, we understand it, we have a healthy respect for it so that we find salvation and strength, we find goodness and holiness and righteousness in Thee, our God, alone. Thus we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.